fellow citizens. Let's, let's be let's be, be bluntly honest. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? In my opinion, still and perhaps always will be the greatest. There's so much there. Okay, yeah. What are we doing, great champion? You help to unite our nation. The cry for freedom has only sport to pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's, 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 nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. Welcome back to Sports and Society. This is Brad. I'm here with Kyle. We're here on July 12th, back on Sunday, but early this morning. How you doing, man? Yeah, I'm feeling the early. But as I just mentioned off air, as a teacher... 7.45 should not feel early to me, but that's the the joy and the struggle of summer is trying to get back into waking up early, but I can't imagine trying to talk to students right now. <laughs> yeah, but how are you? Oh, I'm I'm doing pretty well. I, uh, I'm i here nursing my sore shoulder, so I'm going to try not to move uh, for most of this podcast. Um, but I'm also, I, I just want to back up here and ask you, uh, how different your teaching persona is from the persona we get to listen to here on the podcast. Hmm. I might not, I might say not all that different. I I think how I talk here is how I attempt to talk in the classroom. It's also probably true that I am prone to long winded logical syllogisms wherein I feel like in my brain I'm making a wonderful point, and by the end of it, I've lost most of my audience. So those things I probably do in both spaces. Oh, my. We are uh, we are the most entertaining people you can listen to on a podcast, so we appreciate everyone that's listening right now. <laughs> Indeed. And if you've made it this far, thanks for making it this far. <laughs> well, what have you been paying attention to this week, man? So I, I probably more than in other weeks, I felt like there was a lot of things that piqued my interest. Uh, I think the first thing that stood out to me is reading about Colin Kaepernick signing all these deals with production companies. Mm. And so as best as I can summarize is he now has contracts with Disney and ESPN. Obviously, they're collective, but... Uh, kind of individual deals with both of them and Netflix being involved in those. And also encouraged by the fact that Ava DuVernay and Jamil Hill are both um, going to be part of those projects, whatever they are going to be. And I, I feel like there's a lot there that that even can be like an episode that we could talk mm. a, about that whole thing and break it all down because I guess what's interesting is it's – like from a zoomed out perspective, kind of like a sign of the times in that I would imagine the moment he decided he was going to first take a knee during the national anthem, he probably kind of already had in place this concept and this idea of how to film it and how to document what happens next. Mm. And I think about how these 30 for 30 documentaries and all these other sports documentaries that exist now and have for a while uh, piece together footage and thinking about Colin Kaepernick having a lot of control over the narrative post-Neil and how that kind of links with criticisms of the Jordan documentary mm-hmm. that he had so much control over it and like how that could potentially like um, 
I don't know, accentuate the divide that already exists uh, in the country in that so many folks, I think, are going to write it off right away um, and say, like, he's been controlling this narrative from the beginning. Obviously, they're ignorant, and <laughs> that's pretty stupid for something like this. But uh, at the same time, I'm excited by um, what might come of it. Um, or at least just really interested in this, to see what will come of it. And then the last piece is it's, he's going to continue to profit off of this. Um, and so just throwing that out there, like, what do you do with that, um, hmm. if anything? Uh, but, yeah, it just seems like there's a lot there. And the, the size of those entities, Disney, ESPN, Netflix, also feels like a piece of it. Do you... Um... Um, so I have to confess that I am, uh, very excited for him in some ways to continue to be able to do this. I mean, I, to go back to our previous conversation, um, a while ago about what makes a professional athlete, I, um, I would still consider him a professional athlete at this point, even though he's not being paid to play sports. Um, mm -hmm. Because uh, he is in some ways, and so I, I, I'm really happy to see that. I'm really happy to see, uh, you know, him getting these deals. That being said, I am not particularly interested in watching whatever the doc. I probably will, but I'm not uh, expecting great content from it. I suppose, or mm -hmm. something that's going to be a, a change agent particularly much. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. I'm just super negative on that, but. Um, uh, I just, uh, in some ways I'd be more intrigued to see, like, perhaps he can do something really interesting and leverage it to talk to current players about what the situation is like in locker rooms or things mm -hmm. like that. Uh, but knowing what I know about the entities involved, I don't see them willing to take that risk to go to that place in some ways. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I I feel is interesting about those institutions being part of it in one way it increases reach but in the other way it seems to limit the efficacy of shining a light on the things that i think he wants to shine a light on or that i would presume he wants to so i think like what would be really gripping and moving and effective content and i think it would be illuminating illuminating those things we can't see in particular like just a a fantasy example would be something like receiving an email from ownership of the 49ers mm -hmm. and, and making their attempt at some sort of like cover up or to quiet him and like bring that to the fore or conversations he was having with athletes along the way in locker rooms, like that sort of thing. But because it's Disney, ESPN, Netflix, how damning can they be mm -hmm. in what they show is is the alternate side. Yeah. I will say that I have to give ESPN some credit here for, um, at least in the COVID stuff, um, being willing to let their people talk rather freely about it. Um, mm -hmm. And so, like, you know, hearing Zach Lowe on his podcast talk about how I don't really feel like I want to talk about sports right now has been refreshing. And to hear, I was really kind of blown away that on the front page of ESPN yesterday, they had a um, Paul Feinberg, a little video clip, you know, their lead, perhaps college football insider talking about how um, he had yet to see a reason why we should play college football this fall. Mm -hmm. uh, and to see ESPN put that out um, is really 
uh, I find a fascinating thing. And so maybe, maybe they'll surprise us, but I, uh, I would kind of doubt it. So this gets me to a place of, uh, I'm like maybe vulnerably going to share something I've been thinking about because I don't know how much merit there is to it. But when I hear, uh, of late people expressing the sentiment that Zach Lowe is expressing that it doesn't seem right or ethical or moral to talk about sports right now. It, I guess it just, we talk about this all the time, so maybe this isn't even important, but it's like, I think about other examples we could have used six months ago to justify saying that. Mm-hmm. And so I think like, Oh, there's millions of Americans without health insurance. We probably shouldn't talk about sports right now. Or there's millions of Americans living in extreme poverty. We probably shouldn't talk about sports right now. Or there's a war in Afghanistan. We probably shouldn't talk about sports right now. And so it just if it sends my brain into that space of like exploring and wondering about when is escapism in sports ever appropriate? Mm-hmm. Um, or how do we balance entertainment alongside depravity? Hmm. So those are impossible questions, but I, I guess just to share that that's the space my brain goes to of like when someone decides it's okay to start talking about sports. Yeah, that's interesting because it kind of builds on uh, one of my things I want to talk about this week about how for the first time really since this all started, um, uh, I have found some joy in sports um, through watching Premier League stuff and uh, thinking about the cycling season getting started again. And in some ways, it's an interesting thing because these are, uh, in some ways, I'm vicariously living through places that have got their situation somewhat under control mm-hmm. uh, in the EU and in the UK and such, um, which, uh, like, in some ways, it shines an example for me of, like, this is what we could be having right now. And so it's right. even more infuriating to have what we do have. Um, but it is interesting. And I... Um, uh, like, why do I allow myself to feel that way uh, at this point? Um, and I think that one of the things that um, is perhaps interesting in that context, because um, I think it's a little nuanced as well. Like, I don't think Zach Lowe is saying um, necessarily we shouldn't talk about sports right now uh, as much as he's saying this amount of talking about sports is mm-hmm. unproductive. And so like, I right. feel like there's, that's what we're seeing in some ways is the, the, uh, not necessarily that sports itself are, um, problematic as much as the way that we have leaned on and imbued it with more meaning than we should, uh, right. is problematic. Right. That takes me to, I don't know why I immediately went to this, but it takes me to Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser Mm -hmm. and how I think what they latched on to was the space that does exist in society to have a little bit more nuanced conversation and how that's like, obviously there's always been like outside the lines that's been available to like major public outlets. Uh, but something about them every day kind of balancing the mundane in sports with also things that are a little bit more societally sig- significant um, and how like maybe that it's more about like a balance in that space and what's the appropriate balance. Well, I think that what they also did um, is made it fun. Um, 
their sports yeah, talk. Yeah. And I think that that's a super a little more playfulness. thing. Because I think yeah. when we imbue it with this kind of false seriousness, it becomes even more harmful in some ways. Yeah, well um, said. And I think that that's what, for me, that's when, when I heard Zach Lowe talking, that's what I hear is, I don't want to talk about the NBA restarting skip stuff right now. That just doesn't feel important. Um, mm -hmm. But if you can do it in a way that's like, look at this absurd situation or like, you know, um, you know, focusing on uh, the NBA seem, or the, seems to be putting out a lot of the um, trick shot or, um, right. you know, backroom guys having fun content. And that, that kind of stuff all is a, strikes me as a much more positive tone to take than the way that we normally kind of right. discuss sports. And maybe that's, uh, in some ways, uh, this is, I don't know if I really believe this or not, so don't hold me to this. Um, but I wonder if this will allow us to view sports in the appropriate light of the escapism that it perhaps should be best able to provide as opposed to the meaning that we've often tied mm -hmm. it to and so in this moment we're being shown the absurdity of it right um, and so maybe there's a possibility that we come out of it recognizing uh the absurdity but also recognizing that what sports are really here for is to provide some uh, useful entertainment value for a period of time right right and so you were enjoying watching sports this week i did i did enjoy i kind of Again, it kind of took me to a place where, like, this is what we could have if we had leadership that got their <laughs> shit together. Um, right. Uh, and, you know, it helps that Arsenal has played reasonably well over the last few weeks, and I'm excited to see cycling take back up again. Um, I have no interest in watching the MLS, which we're going to talk about that soon. Um, mm -hmm. um, but also just the NBA stuff seems uh, farther and farther from – being weird, uh, being made uh, normal, even though they're going to start playing here before we know it. Yeah. It all just seems so futile to me, that being MLS, MLB, and NBA. Uh, the, the extent to which it could, like, crash so quickly and is necessitating so much work on the front end um, and is seemingly putting a lot of people in danger... I, it's so hard to get to a place to where it's justifiable other than the incentive being that these leagues are losing a lot of money. And they're reopening freaking Disney World. Yep. Yep. In the state with some of the highest reported uh, case rates in the country, in the world. Yeah. Yeah. But... <sighs> Well, I have to take a moment here also to give a massive shout out to Woj, um, who bombed a senator, which uh, is just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Tell the story what happened. Yeah, so uh, I forget the senator, Josh Howley, I think maybe. Um, yeah. Uh, a conservative senator came out because uh, the NBA is going to allow players to have social justice messages on their uniforms. Uh, and I was actually quite disappointed this morning to hear LeBron is going to not have a social justice message on his uniform. But then again, you know, my standards for LeBron are too damn high, but, um, mm -hmm. uh, it is, uh, uh, he came out and said, why can't we have, you know, 
essentially blue lives matter and why can't we have anti-Chinese sentiment on these things? The Chinese thing clearly, in my mind, even though he probably believes it, because there are a number of conservatives that worry about that stuff, um, clearly his chief thing was about... uh, you know, the police and the military and these kind of things. And to which this, um, to this press release, um, Adrian Wojnarowski, perhaps the biggest NBA reporter in the world, replied, uh, F you, uh, except spelled it out. And that's all he said in his response. And it was amazing. Uh, <laughs> at, at which point the senator released that, uh, a, a screenshot of that email, which is just, uh, another level of low blow in some ways in my mind. Mm -hmm. But uh, also uh, fascinating just to think about um, conservative NBA fans and what, what that subculture must look like. Exactly. I think my favorite part is that there was no punctuation. No, (laughs) it was clearly (laughs) like he saw it and just responded immediately. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I meant to check and see what time he sent it. Oh, it was early in the morning. It was eight fifty-five in the morning. That's awesome. Yep, bright spot. He of course apologized, but it it was clearly uh, uh, not apology that he meant what he was saying in the apology. So yeah, yeah. I was happy to see a lot of other. Uh, sports writers and commenters come out in support of him. Oh yeah. I mean the, the Twitter thread was essentially entirely, we know you had to do this, but we're with you Woj on it. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that's pretty great. (laughs) Um, I do wonder like, um, I'm not one that has hope on these kinds of things, but, um, it does make me wonder how many people that, like really respect Woj's reporting or Zach Lowe's reporting that um, when they find out that he, you know, uh, leans to the left or whatever direction he leans in, at least on this one particular issue, does that, does having that relationship with them change how you respond to that? Or is it just like everything else where you seem to throw their opinion out the window if you don't agree with it? Yeah. And I, I do think there are, folks that will care and will attempt some sort of like ad hoc black ball of Woj for this. But I wonder how many people that is and if they could amass a critical mass um, to like really affect anything. And so it takes me to like Jameel Hill being silenced uh, and taken off of ESPN because um, people thought sports center was too liberal uh, when she was hosting. And so it's like, there probably is space to um, affect change from the conservative standpoint in response to something like that. But I wonder on something like just a a journalist or someone whose content primarily comes out through uh, being interviewed or writing stories, uh, I don't know if they'll be pushed back as much. Well, I think it's also important to remember that um, 90 five at least percent of people that read us ESPN's NBA coverage or watch ESPN will never hear about this. Um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't know about your Twitter feed, but mine's been kind of blowing up with this letter that was in Harper's the letter. Have you uh, been following this? No, I haven't. 
Um, so it's essentially, it was signed by like a number of prominent academics and folks. It's essentially a statement against, um, uh, well, I, it's against cancel culture, but in favor of allowing free expression in the academic and writing spaces. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and it's signed by like a number of folks that I respect and admire, but there's a number, it's, it's become a whole thing. Um, and so now there's a bunch of folks that are following it and it's like the biggest thing in their world. And yet 99% of the world will never understand what it means when you see the letter pop up in a conversation. Right. Right. Yeah. Anyway, I'd be intrigued in knowing your opinion. So you should take a look at it. All right. I will. I'll check it out. But all right. Well, you want to talk about our main topic today? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so we're going to talk about the MLS today and how we would change it were we uh, put in charge of the league. So, uh, <laughs> which is an absurd concept. <laughs> it's just saying it out loud is hilarious. Um, and of course, even if we were put in charge of the league, we would never have this uh, this kind of sway. But uh, what uh, we're going to kind of alternate back and forth some ideas here. But uh, do you want to kick us off, Kyle? What's kind of the biggest thing uh, on your on your plate? So I think for me, it, it was helpful to kind of make it general at first. And so I was thinking from a broad perspective, what my intentions would be and what sort of specific values I would be coming from. And so I, I, it's more than obvious to say that it would be a pro-labor perspective. And in addition to pro-labor, it would be like pro-community, pro-city, uh, pro-player. Uh, and so in that way, I'm thinking about like the health and wellness of all those involved in making it possible uh, and the health and wellness for all those that would seek to gain enjoyment from it. Uh, or gain connection to a community or something like that. So I think all of my stuff kind of distills down or stems from those sort of things. So I was saying, I think one of the first things I would care about is incorporating as many people as possible into a position of being a stakeholder. And so in that way, I would incentivize things like fan ownership, employee ownership, player ownership, city ownership. Uh, and even as far as to like local businesses that would benefit from things like home games or advertising contracts to be incorporated into actual ownership uh, such that they have a financial and meaningful personal connection with the club. So instead of like a billion, one billionaire owner uh, being able to call the shots on what the team looks and acts like uh, it, the club would truly belong to a, a mass of stakeholders. And I, I, I don't know anything about the financial part, like specifics other than to say, I think 51% of a club going to non-singular ownership uh, would be something that would like make a statement to say that this club mostly belongs to everyone as opposed to just one person. Um, so I think that would be my first decree. 
Well, that's that's interesting because I kind of went back and forth on this question because the MLS's ownership structure is unique. Um, it is, yeah. And that they don't have owners. They have uh, investor, manager people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of don't know. Uh, I, I agree with you that that's what I would like to see. But at the same time, um, in terms of um, – the success of the league, I am intrigued by the idea of continued management from a central location um, and ownership from above, because I'm not sure that I think that um, devolving it back into ownership of uh, other places and single billionaire or even um, community-wide ownership results in better outcomes for the players and for the league as a whole uh i think Mm -hmm. you can wind up pretty quickly in a place where it's a a lot more contentious and competitive in that space which i'm not sure is a productive place um so i didn't have a strong opinion on how i wanted to handle that um but it's interesting and i think um uh there's some interesting discussion and i think that one of the big things that i wanted to push that builds on that is just that there needs to be a radical increase in transparency in how the MLS operates. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that comes back to how deals are done, how financial deals are done, um, you know, how players decide to go where, because it's all super convoluted right now and that needs to be stripped away. And so I'm not sure I would propose a devolving of ownership to um, to single entities or uh, whatever it may be, but um, I would certainly advocate for a radically different uh, structure of how the single entity would work as a mm-hmm. as a league. Yeah, and so this this gets to a central contradiction or something that is difficult to kind of work through when making a wish list, I think, is that uh, my most earnest proposals are radical and impossible if we're talking about, like, reforming the MLS. Whereas I think, like, where I could speak most honestly and truthfully would be, like, we scrap it and start over. Hmm. Um, Because I think if I could speak more to, like, my broad base. Uh, conceptual perspective or hopes would be that you you would kind of start from a place to say like okay so this is the ownership model we want and if we can't do this without this being possible or part of it then we're we're not going to do it hmm. kind of thing which that, that's right that's <laughs> that's worthless to say uh, so in that way, it's like how to reform something with these, uh, with this wishful thinking versus saying like burn it all down and we'll start over. Um, so it's that central dilemma of like the of one that's wishing for radical social justice in the world. Um, do you burn it all down or work from within, kind of thing? Well, and I think that the other aspect of that is how f- uh, you know this is me being a semi-conservative white man here for a little bit but um uh how do you maintain those structures over a period of time so let's say we burn it all down Mm -hmm. and we build it back up and uh and the model is more on the um the club model that we saw in the epl and these other places and yet we've also seen that that fandom becomes really 
quick to sell out when an individual comes in that's going to invest in the club uh, and is willing to put their own money on the line. So how do you maintain that once you've created uh, a new thing is a, is a, is uh, an important facet of that as well. Right. Well, and so that's the absurdity of what we're like, I think we would share in common is like, uh, there wouldn't be hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars at stake, right? We would be talking about like maybe semi-professional structuring where it's like community teams, maybe traveling just a, no more than a hundred miles from home to play someone else. Uh, like, you know, um, Cincinnati and Columbus might play against each other, but Cincinnati would never play LA. Um, so like literally incorporating things like climate change and uh, wealth distribution into how we formulate our, our, our sports world. So that's what I mean about the difficulty of like I'm having to hold an erasure or like suspend like this true ideal out there um, hmm. just to throw that out there. Well, yeah, and I uh, I hear you, and I you know in many ways I, this is not the the tack I took in some ways, but in many ways, yeah, I, I mean a a a regional system. Although I would push you and say that we need to have a national or even international cup based competition. Uh, in addition, would be uh, mm. the way to go uh, with that. But um, it is uh, it's hard to fathom uh, exactly. Uh, it's hard for me anyway to go to the place of what what can we get to because i suppose the the, the type of activist i am is uh the type that uh loses hope when we go to those places um mm. yeah it's mostly discouraging right to envision to spend too much time envisioning the ideal mm -hmm. yeah so same like all, all mine i think come from a place of hoping that uh, anything I would propose comes from the ideal in some sort of way or is like um, bolstered by an ideal, even if those ideals aren't like specifics as much as just feelings and values. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But what's your second one? So uh, I was intrigued to learn uh, as I kind of dug into the structure there, just how static leadership is at the MLS. Mm -hmm. um, and so they don't have a single uh, – uh, senior executive that's joined since 2013 um and the their commissioner garber has been with them since 1999 their president since 93 um uh you know most of these folks have been here except with the exception of one individual everyone has been with the league at least 15 years mm -hmm. um and that i think has to change um yeah as we look at a league that um has a very particular vision and continues to grow in a particular way. Um, uh, that, uh, is very worrisome to me that, that, that leadership group has been together and not had any injection of new ideas in that entire time. Yeah, it, it is an interesting part of it. And I thought about this too, of it had me curious about how much back padding is going on. Hmm. And how th there's this part of me that doesn't want to like hate on it too much. Again, it like sends me into this contradictory space of like they have grown the league like 
incredibly, mm-hmm. like way more than I ever could have thought possible. And they're set to probably like were COVID not happening, they probably would have generated something like five hundred million dollars this year, uh, up from like twenty two million their first season. So they have created this product that is growing exponentially, uh, and. I, I, again, am left in the space of like, I wonder to what extent that type of growth is because they have maintained an insular community. But then also I'm with you a thousand percent that those insular type communities kind of reek of authoritarianism Mm -hmm. uh, and kind of like reifying or holding up these constructs that exist in America that we're very against. Agreed. Yeah. Well, what else is what's next on your list? Um let's see. I'll go with I probably got four or five more, but I would say oh this, this is kind of a fun one. Instant citizenship for international players and their families. Interesting. Yeah. Um I, I think it would draw talent. Uh, I think it would potentially lead to a bolstering of the youth systems. Um, and I, I think it's more, to say this is more like emblematic of my wish that it's like telling individuals and their families that you are a part of our society holistically, if you, especially if we're seeking to make money off of you. And so while it is possible to come to the United States and make a decent living playing in Major League Soccer, um, I would imagine, and if you dug in a little bit to the details, that a lot of the international players are on those lower salary contracts in the MLS, so like $70,000, $80,000 a year. Um, so what would it look like to like drastically increase the incentives of coming to the United States to make a living playing soccer? Hmm. other than to say you get instant citizenship or we'll start the process the day you get here uh, and be part of that process interesting I suppose that there's a part of me that thinks that that's not a particularly powerful incentive at this point in time Uh, (laughs) yeah Uh, but I also um, I'm a little bit troubled by the idea that we would then pull the best talent from these other countries in some way i would rather the mls support leagues in other places um as opposed to trying to poach that talent in some ways Mm -hmm. and if they want to come here then we'll welcome them but i don't want this to be the best situation for a honduran youth to get ahead in life i would rather um a support a honduran league that would be as powerful and as competitive as the u.s league would be um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't either because that makes me think of um, is the MLS uh, or what would it look like to think of our professional leagues as exporters of something? Hmm. And I don't know how I feel about that. Um, I think about how a lot of the European clubs have academies around the world. Is that a model we would want the MLS to follow? 
Well, I don't. Again, I don't think so because in my mind, that's that's a tool to get them to come back to the main club eventually. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is this goes to one of my things, which is I want to support, would want the league to support and invest in cup tournaments in the Champions League, the Concacaf Champions League, mm-hmm. um, because I want people to see um, the U.S. teams playing against Mexican, Honduran, and uh, Panamanian mm-hmm. competition consistently, and seeing that the the quality of play is very similar in those places you know i think that there's um if we look at the european system i think that there's a very clear uh, situation where the italians probably think that the Serie A is the best league uh the brits certainly think that the premier league is the best league but there's an immense appreciation for what those other leagues do and when someone leaves a league to go to another league it's in fact expected when they reach a certain caliber to do so um and so I would just love the the Honduran player to be able to stay in Honduras if he wants to, but mm-hmm. that if he gets to a certain level that we welcome him to the MLS or he can go play in the Mexican league or he can go play in the, uh, in the coast, the Costa Rican league or whatever he wants to go to, uh, I mm-hmm. suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's at the core of the citizenship thing for me is the idea of, if the United States economy is going to benefit from you being here, then you deserve immediate membership in our citizenship model. Um, I, so that just the idea of like exploitation versus belonging. Um, and, and I think of like how many people would benefit from citizenship as far as it relates to things like education. Well, yeah, and I guess that my... Uh, for me, that comes down to like, because um, citizenship, I guess, I, in my mind, I'm not opposed to giving everybody citizenship. I just feel like it's a little bit complicated for me in that, um, A, a lot of company countries won't allow you to maintain dual citizenship. So I don't know what that means for players that want to maintain uh, uh, representation for their original home country versus... Mm-hmm. Uh, how much of that is the U.S. going to exploit to have a better team, uh, national team? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder if there's ways to do it uh, in terms of like ensuring everyone gets a permanent green card and investing in the families that come with the people. So like there's mm-hmm. a uh, if you hire a uh, why do I, I don't know why I keep going to Honduras uh, if you hire a Nicaraguan. Um, uh, uh, person to come join your team that you also have to pay for his family to come in um, right. and join him. And that includes uh, whoever he wants to join him up to 10 people or whatever, something like that. Right. Uh, and green card status for all of those individuals. Right. Yeah. And I think it, for me, it comes from a place of like the real sentiment being how hard it is to immigrate mm-hmm. and, and, and what would a really just MLS look like or a just professional sports league look like as, as it relates to immigration? And I, I think the ultimate point would be like we are going to actively do everything we can for this to benefit you and your family in every way, not just financially. But we're going to acknowledge that this is you being in this country and your family being in another country is probably really horrible. 
And trying to negotiate United States culture when you're from another culture is probably really difficult. Um, and so the idea being that that adds a lot of stress and pressure mm-hmm. and uh, ill health to someone's life. And so like what sort of ways could we say we're going to meet those challenges head on and be part of helping you mitigate the negative consequences of coming here? Yeah, and I think that part of my reservation, I have to confess, comes from uh, my own radical beliefs here, uh, since you've you've put yours out there, that uh, about uh, just doing away with national borders would be my preferred outcome in mm-hmm. this regard. So citizenship, you know, I would rather have a global citizenship perspective as opposed to uh, the other perspective. But having a, I think we can kind of settle in some ways on, at the very least, uh, having a, a radically open and welcoming environment in which um, individuals can come play in the league and making that meaningful beyond just a slogan that there are actually policy components to that uh, stance as well. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Where are you on relegation? I... um am not a fan of relegation in the MLS context. Mm-hmm. I think uh, were we to, as you suggested, scrap it and start again, I'd be very in favor of it. Um, but the way that things are currently set up, I don't think so. Uh, with the possible exception that one of the things I've noted here is I would like to slow expansion Um Mm-hmm. And what I would rather see expansion take the form of is regional networks so that there would be like a, a northeast, a southeast, uh, a midwest, and a western regional leagues and have the potential for those teams to compete in cup competitions against the main MLS teams. But they'd also be youth development and uh, and potentially long-term relegation and promotion targets. But I don't... Uh, the way that it's set up right now, I don't think that that's something I would push for without radical other change first. Right. How about yourself? Yeah, it feels impossible. And I feel like the way they have the MLS kind of centralizing the league the way it does mm-hmm. um, is a disincentive for relegation or relegation doesn't seem to fit in that model. In particular, it's connected, like you said, I think to um, how the league is growing and relegation is not an incentive to invest hundreds of millions of dollars, right? It's like anti-incentive to investing hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, The thing I can't get away from is the kind of like, hyper democratic ethos that underlies re- the relegation model hmm. uh, in the sense that it gives uh, smaller markets an opportunity to access larger markets. The extent to which that's true is tricky. And there are a lot of like taking the European model doesn't necessarily like mean a more socialist <laughs> uh, political polity sort of set up, but it, it is just um, there's something about it that I love the messaging of relegation, um, but I also can critique it and say that it, it 
it, it leads to a lot of bad things um, or a lot of things that um, just don't feel all that great. So this is where I'm thinking of what we talked about last mm-hmm. week of Sunderland till I die. Uh, relegation, you could argue, is brought up a lot of the worst of um, what exists in English society and England soccer. So I don't know. I don't know where I am on it, other than I like the idea of smaller clubs getting an opportunity. So I think that um, there's a kind of a trade-off in my mind that there um, uh, and I haven't put much invest thought into this, but um, one of my other comments here is to massively grow the salary cap um, and to exempt youth academy players from uh, the salary mm-hmm. cap. Um, uh, and so, but I do still, I shied away from doing away with the salary cap altogether because I do think that we get a little bit of what you discuss there um yeah i agree and that you know we don't have the relegation start so we're not going to have uh and like lester is such an anomaly to be able to come up and win the league um so you know somebody like sunderland can come in uh, and be super excited to host man united man city chelsea um for a few seasons and finish 10th as like the best case scenario um uh, but in the MLS, on the other hand, you know, every team legitimately could win a title without needing that massive amount of investment. And so, you know, uh, in some ways, it's, uh, I think, problematic for the league publicity wise to have that fluctuation and see somebody like the Red Bulls or the Galaxy fluctuate from being really great to being mediocre from year to year. Right. But I think it also allows teams like, um, you know, uh, Real Salt Lake um, or the Houston Dynamos to uh, win in ways that we might not see were we to have the more structured uh, European model uh, or the less structured, more money, capital-intensive European model. Right. Yeah, so this is like I think the part that fascinates me most to think about and the part that maybe I feel like I don't understand fully because there's, it seems so complex. Because in some ways, uh, relegation as it exists in Europe uh, almost seems like placating or pandering. It's almost like a uh, a platitude or like a fake democratic ethos mm-hmm. in the sense that if there is private ownership and if players sign contracts with teams as opposed to the league as they do in MLS – then one could argue that it is democratic in the sense that like if someone if a rich owner wants to pay a lot of money for a player they can do that they have the freedom to do that and they don't have that freedom in major league soccer mm-hmm. and then you can argue back and say like yeah but that means the teams that don't have a billionaire owner don't get to play at that level and don't get to be part of that. And they're the ones that are forced to go through the relegation mm-hmm. uh, and the horror of relegation for a, a city and a team and players and everybody. Um, and so it gets really messy really quick. And it, it's hard to de- like decipher where the goodness is or where the demo- democratic part of it truly is. Mm-hmm. But I think I, I would... And all that to say that I think I like that players don't sign contracts with teams in MLS. Mm-hmm. I think that is a, a really good thing. I think. I, I feel like I need to learn more about it. But 
Well, I, I do think that there's some complexity <laughs> that like it needs to change. Uh, I think we would both agree in that um, free agency needs to happen for MLS players. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a way that you can do free agency while keeping all the contracts with the league as a whole. Yeah. It would be like a bureaucratic nightmare in some ways, but more complicated systems uh, have worked before. Right. Yeah, that's well said. And I believe, as I understand it, I feel like we've talked about it a little bit before, but the most recent collective bargaining agreement did enhance free agency. I think you have to play like five years mm -hmm. and then you can become a free agent, uh, which is pretty good, all things considered, compared to other leagues around the world. Um, and I, I get the sense that the Major League Soccer Players Union is pretty effective and uh, seemingly like has a lot of support amongst the players and even the ownership that they, as of late, it seems to be a pretty good relationship all the way around. That's just my hunch, I guess. Yeah, and I, I think that the other thing that um, is part of this conversation that needs to be fleshed out as well is the the way that players are decided who goes where. Um, mm -hmm. And so I really want to see them do away with the draft and also yeah. want to see them do away with all these regulations they have about where u.s men's players can go where other folks can go um, right and so in some ways this is uh, a matter of giving players more power but i think it's also a way of rewarding positive leadership um so ownership that is productive ownership even if it's not real ownership management that is solid as opposed to um there's really no disincentive from being kind of a crappy owner manager in the mls um right at this point and so I think that there's some, and that's some free market logistics. Yes, I know. Uh, surprising to hear from us Marxists on here, but um, yeah, I think in, in the long run it, it can reward those uh, positive steps that some of those clubs could take. Right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it, it incentivizes the things we believe in, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like being a good person. <laughs> And running your organization in a fair way where parity is valued. Um, yeah, I, I think nothing would be more radical in American sports were we to make that possible. Uh, I, I think of, I'm not even keeping up with football, the LSU quarterback that is now plays for the Bengals. Mm -hmm. Do you know? I don't know his name. Burrow, I think. Burrow, yeah. I, I just always I, I feel so terrible for the player that gets drafted by the Bengals first or second every year, <laughs> or the Cleveland Browns. Like, I that would just be so disheartening. Mm -hmm. Like, you've you've worked your whole life for this thing, and you are incredibly valuable for good reasons or bad reasons, whatever. But just at a human level, like going to a really dysfunctional organization because you have no choice over where you get to work, right? Like, I, I mean. It, that the draft exists at all is kind of a fascinating concept. Um, mm -hmm. And it, I feel, feel like it's something that is so embedded and normalized in our culture that we don't think about it, but it's one of the least democratic things that exists in America, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like being told where you have to work and saying you have to work there five years before you can decide to work somewhere else. <laughs> that is really messed up. Like if that existed in the rest of society, that I mean, 
right? Is, yeah. Imagine if uh, investment bankers were forced to go work somewhere when they came out of their Ivy League school. Like, well, I'm, yeah, even more like, you know, so, you know, uh, I'm going to go back to center here. We graduated from center and all the companies in Kentucky are judged by who is doing worst and the worst companies get to pick whichever yeah. graduate they want first. Man, right. that would be like, I work really hard at center and now I get drafted by this uh, company running illegal stock transactions or right. just this really poorly mismanaged company, whatever it is. Like, yeah. Right. Awful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also had a question about revenue sharing. Mm. Um, what if MLS shared revenue with the National Women's Soccer League? Yeah. And kind of like, why, why do we have to have MLS and National Women's Soccer League? Why not have one thing? I think that's an excellent point. Um, I'm intrigued to know why it hasn't happened yeah um like why did why was the nba able to spin off the WNBA? um and yet we don't see because let's be clear here i am fairly confident not 100 percent, but uh knowing what i know about the uh, women's soccer league it's probably not going to exist in five years at least not in the form that it does Mm -hmm. right now and so there's every opportunity for the mls to get involved in that space it's not like they've kind of been pushed out by a competitor right right yeah i also don't know a lot about it other than to say i, I would just put it on my list of things like that would be amazing like if the mls like took an activist role in women's soccer in america as opposed to just kind of like niceties and saying we support it like Okay, really make a make a twenty year dot twenty year investment plan, right? Like really put money behind it and really create an organization and an institution that uh, is, is substantial and can weather tough times. Would you ever be a fan of the national association running a league like that? What? How would you feel if U.S. Soccer ran? I mean, obviously there are issues with U.S. soccer, but if the national entity like a U.S. soccer ran the leagues, would that be a benefit or would that be a detraction in the long run? So I didn't even realize I like I had these questions in me, but I, I was, and I guess I was just ignorant of a lot. I, I was learning some and researching this stuff of like that MLS model is really intriguing in that you sign a contract with MLS mm -hmm. and it, it, may, it makes me think about centralizing power and how that works in these things we call leagues. And so I was just in the space of thinking about it conceptually and at the very first steps of something, I was like, I've never really thought about this and kind of enjoying the thought experiment of it all. And so your question gets exactly to that of, where do you centralize power insofar as you need some sort of centralized power to um, adjudicate and decide how how things are going to go? And do we want U.S. soccer to do that? Hell no. <laughs> and I'm only speaking to the dysfunction of U.S. soccer in that way uh, and the sexism and everything else that uh, they've been plagued with. But 
were there an entity that could do it, then I, I like and do it better than U.S. soccer has shown itself to do anything. Uh, I think maybe I would say yes. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I don't know. And I'm so I think that there's two kind of divergent, radically different perspectives that we brought to the table here. One being that we want to see a radically decentralized uh, option. But then I think in some ways what we're saying is that if we don't, if that's not on the table, what we'd rather see is a centralized option that has a little more uh, equity and uh, and justice to it in some ways um, that's run through a single operating entity. And if that's the case, why in some ways do is it not uh, a governmental model, which is a mm-hmm. whole nother question. And of course, there's massive issues with that. Um mm-hmm. But why, uh, if we're going to go to that space, why not go to, um, like, really going to that space and not allowing the weird stuff? Like, you know, I don't think that the Bengals would allow, or the MLS would allow a Bengals situation to occur. Um, and it would just be a, a part of how we understand that league. Mm-hmm. Which, which has me curious of how and why... Uh, we often wind up in democratic socialist space uh, and how easy it it seems to get there in that I, I don't think I'm anti-capitalism, uh, but I'm also pro-socialism. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it's, it's in that space that um, I would like to see these leagues uh, form themselves. Hmm. So like uh, actively uh promoting policies that are decentralizing and limiting, but still having a strong centralized space for mm-hmm. power that has the like political capital to make decrees like that. Yeah. I mean, cause in some ways like the NBA wouldn't be possible to make the social justice stance the NBA has made without having the centralized entity as part of it. Right. And yet there's also of course, massive issues with having such a centralized uh, course of power and that how that is um, left large segments of the population with no power in that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how, how, how effective centralized power is for limiting the power of others. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then you're into utilitarian type yeah, stuff. Well, like, like what is the, and of course, then we're into the whole conversation on the conservative side is, can it even be done right. in a just way um, right. that um, we limit people's power in that scope? Right. Hmm. Anyway, well, I will, um, I, I don't, do you have anything else you wanted to share? Uh No, I think that kind of gets it for me, actually. Okay. Well, I just want to give a very... Um, uh, uh, milk toast and not philosophical comment here that the first thing I would do is shorten the damn playoffs and yeah. not let like every team into the playoffs. It's yep. absurd. It's just yes. absurd from a competitive yes. standpoint. If you finish as bad as some of these playoff teams do, that you should never be in the playoffs. Anyway, I do like playoffs though. I do. I like. I like that MLS has a playoff. I do, but I don't want it to be. I want it to be like a four or eight team single elimination tournament. I want it to essentially be another cup <laughs> tournament at the end of the season. 
Um, and you have a, and they do, they have a champion shield, but I want that league championship to mean something more than it means now. Yeah, that's fair. I agree. All right. Well, if you're listening to MLS, there you go. You're welcome for the free consulting here. Next time, <laughs> next time we'll charge you lunch for it. So it's so funny to think about how, like, Every single owner in the MLS would be like, yeah, we're not doing any of that. (laughs) (laughs) No, never. Yeah. Everything you said is against everything we believe in. Thanks for the podcast. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, you got any trivia for us? Yeah. Um, I got snagged and wrapped up in a Red Bull uh, rabbit hole. Um, and I think this is something that every time I've seen Red Bull for the last 15 years, I've been like, what the hell are they? How, what is going on? Because they're all over the sports world. Mm -hmm. Um, and it raises the question like, why, why is an energy drink all over the sports world? And so I was digging into who and what Red Bull is. And I think, um, in particular, as I've gotten interested in formula one, um, paying attention to Red Bull's role in Formula One. And so um, just some statistics here. Uh, uh, Red Bull has two teams in Formula One, actually. And they spent last year a combined $181 million for that. Wow. Um, Fascinatingly, they made a profit. And they're known as one of the constructors that does make a profit every year. Hmm. Their profit was $1.8 million. So out of $181 million investment, uh, they get $1.8 million in cash. But you would have to imagine oh, that no. they, the, the uh, value of product placement, I guess. But I think about what upholds all that, and it's an energy drink. And so it led me to this week's trivia question, which is how many cans of Red Bull are sold in a year? Oh, wow. Okay. So think about it. I wouldn't even know where to begin. Yeah, it's bizarre to think about. Like, what? Is, like, what is this entity that can spend this much on sports and so many other advertising ventures, uh, and they're upheld by an energy drink? Well, then I have a request for you for next okay. week. Then uh, give us some comparison points if you can. Okay. Um, like where does Coca-Cola or uh, oh yeah okay I'll look into that like that fall in the spectrum okay damn I like I have it no freaking clue okay all right all right well tune thank- in next week to find out this really important answer yes it is well and I will say um, for your enjoyment uh, Kyle I will say that uh, I was quite fascinated and wrapped up in a little rabbit hole yesterday of. Um, watching folks on YouTube play F1 video games uh-huh. and how incredibly, like even the stuff for console and PC, how incredibly complex yeah. the stuff is. And like all that goes into building these machines, even in a video game is yeah. mind boggling. It really is. It's mind boggling. The large scale investment in formula one is mind blowing. Yes. I don't it touches everything. It. Yeah, I really don't understand it. <laughs> That's what first got me into it, honestly. Literally, the question you're asking is like where I started. I was like, what is this monstrosity? So, all right.
right. Well, thank you all for listening. Please give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this. Uh, and we'll be back next week, more than likely. But uh, thank you, Kyle. Thanks, man. To pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's, nobody's, calling, no, no, nobody, nobody, nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. I was a huge Dikembe Mutombo fan.